And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I want to start and end with a very important and exciting announcement for everyone listening on the Nachum Siegel Network and beyond. On the night, late afternoon, we will give you the exact hour uh, as soon as we know, but on March 2nd, which is coming up very, very soon, really just two weeks away, really, on March 2nd, which is the day of the Israel national election, I will be hosting and putting together hours of live coverage of the vote results, complete with live updates, complete with analysis. We are gathering a cast of stars and people who really know what they're talking about. We will try our best. We are trying our best to get a a diverse group of people who come from different sides of the story. And, I know we've had a lot of elections. (laughs) This will be the third national election for Israel in 11 months because there haven't been problems counting the votes. It's not like Iowa. (laughs) If that hasn't been the problem, the problem is in a parliamentary system, you got to form a a coalition. And there have been two failures now after elections to form coalitions. Uh, Most of that is because of a gentleman named Avigdor Lieberman, who's the head of the Israel Beitenu party. Many of you know all of these details already. I'm not going to get too much into that now. I just want everyone to remember that March 2nd on the Nachum Siegel Network, and there will be other places where you'll be able to follow it also, probably Facebook Live, probably YouTube. I will have much more information about all of that. We are probably going to start the broadcast when the polls close in Israel, which would be about 3 p.m. Eastern time. But do not hold me to that time yet. We will let everyone know with more than a week before the election when we will start going live. But absolutely know this, for English language live analysis and coverage of the election, the only place to go is going to be the Nachum Siegel Network. The only person to go to is going to be Jake Novak and my cast of of experts. Uh, Anyone else covering this will either be in Israel, covering it in Hebrew, and good for them, that's the national language, that's okay. Um, But if you want an American-based with plenty of guests from Israel and all kinds of expertise, you're going to have to come here, and we're really excited about it. I'm really excited about it. And know this as well. Obviously, you won't be able to tune into any of your American news networks to get any of the news, Uh, certainly not as it happens. You're not going to be able to turn on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, any of those, and find out who's winning. That's not going to happen. But I don't even think we're going to get much discussion of the results the morning after on all those networks because the morning after will be March 3rd, the day of the Super Tuesday primaries. And if there's any mention at all of the Israel election at all during the day, I'll be surprised. That's how it's going to be. So that's what we're looking at uh, for March 2nd. Uh, I can't tell you whether there's going to be a clear winner that night or any of those kinds of things, but I can tell you that the only place to go for the results, for the analysis, for the expertise is going to be the Nachum Siegel Network and some of the other places where we will simulcast it. Um, And uh, again, that is March 2nd. That's a Monday. So again, more details coming. You can follow that. Look for the details on my Twitter feed at JakeJakeNY. Nachum on his JM and the AM show. We start talking. We'll start talking about it a little bit more, and um, I, I'm I'm really excited about it because everyone deserves. Everyone who cares about the state of Israel, everyone who's following uh, developments in the Middle East, really deserves to have good coverage 
of this in, in our language here in the United States, the English language here in the U.S., of course, very much in favor of Hebrew and Israel. But for, for our English language understanding and, and speaking audience, I think that they should have that kind of coverage, especially when you think about, uh, for example, evangelical supporters of Israel who, who may not necessarily understand any Hebrew and, and wouldn't be able to follow it even if they did have an internet connection with some of the Israeli channels. So again, a million reasons to tune in March 2nd on the Nachum Siegel Network right here and on some other places where there will be that live coverage of the Israel election results, and I'm very excited about it. Um, speaking of elections, you know, the last couple of editions of Novak now, I've talked about some candidates. I've talked about their chances. This is uh, th- these kinds of horse race analysis, uh, campaign analysis um, shows or columns that I write are very prominent, not only on, the, on, this, on this program, Novak Now, but also in my CNBC uh, column that I write two, three times a week. Um, and as the election heats up, it's going to be more like three times a week these days. There's been a, a, a bigger demand for um, my writing over at CNBC. So it's going from two to three times a week. It was three times last week. I think it was three times the week before. So it's going to get more, um, it's going to get busier <laughs> over there. And that's understandable. This is the election year. We are getting into the heat, the, the height of the primaries. That was completely expected. But you know, one of the things I worry about when it comes to the coverage of our elections is it does tend to be a lot more about the horse race and the polls than I'd like it to be. Now, I'm very interested in talking about the polls. I'm very interested in talking about the, you know, what they tell us and how they're conducted and all of that. Um, but this is probably something that you might remember from when you were a kid in school, or maybe you still hear it sometimes now, which is covering polls and covering the horse race aspect of elections is not really covering American politics. It certainly doesn't get into the ideas. It certainly doesn't get into the debate of different philosophies. It certainly doesn't spend too much time on the records of the individual candidates and all of that. So it's, it's kind of a lower brow form of political coverage. I think it's a little bit lazy. Uh, it has to be done. We have to talk about the polls. You have to talk about where people are in the race. It's certainly not something that shouldn't be discussed. But it definitely comes at the expense of discussing ideas a little bit more, discussing philosophies a little bit more. And that's too bad. That's too bad. And, you know, the polls are also misleading. And I don't mean they're misleading because someone's cheating. I know that there's a lot of conspiracies out there. People think, well, these polls, these national polls are tilted deliberately in favor of Democrats and, and all that stuff. I, look, a lot of the people conducting the polls might be liberals some of them might be conservatives, and maybe, maybe even subconsciously some of them are tilting these polls unfairly. That's possible, because we're human and I get it. But I really don't think that's the problem with polls. If that's a problem with polls, we can discuss that at another time. I don't think it's the main problem with polls. The main problem with polls is they, they can't be accurate in the way that we run our elections in this country. You've probably heard me say this, and I've written about it in my CNBC column, if you've been following me for any period of time. The first problem is we spend so much time on national polls. And there's not any election in the United States that's really a national election. We have elections for national office, for president and vice president, that kind of thing. But really only president. Obviously, we don't vote for vice, separately for vice president anymore. We haven't done that since uh, Thomas Jefferson's time. But we don't have – but that's not how we play the game, right? Our elections in this country are state by state, even for president – when we're, when we're voting for senator, it's state by state, and everything else is either at the district level or even even more local than that. 
So there is no such thing as a national election other than maybe American Idol, right? I mean, we don't, we don't vote in this country nationally for any office whatsoever. It's state by state. So that's the first problem. About 90% of the reports that you see during a presidential election year are about these national polls, which I think are almost completely irrelevant. There's a small relevance to them because when you see a very big lead in a national poll or something like that, you might be able to extrapolate other things. Or when you see tremendous differences and things like that, you might be able to figure something out from that. But generally, generally, what we deal with with national polls is, is misleading. When we see someone is leading the polls nationally, that's not the way it works, right? Someone could win the popular vote nationally through all 50 states in this country and the District of Columbia by a lot of percentage points and still losing the Electoral College. Hillary Clinton got more, got two percentage points more in the, of, the, uh, 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 of the popular vote, right? And she still, still lost the Electoral College. So that's my first problem with the polls. We spend a lot of time talking about national polls and we give them more of a, of a relevance. I think the news media is the reason why that happens. The pollsters are like any other vendor, any other entity in the free market, right? The pollsters are just doing what their customers are asking them to do, where they're going to make the money. So the national news media, which reports these polls, is asking them to do a lot of national polls. And so they're doing a lot of national polls. And I would like the news media to start thinking more about their customers and and less about their lazy selves, because I think it is lazy. It's lazy to do a national poll. It's kind of easier to understand. It's easier to print. They think the viewers and the listeners and, and, and readers are not so smart. And I say this from 25 years plus working in newsrooms, 26 years working in newsrooms, where the people in those newsrooms think the viewers are not that smart, or, or, or more importantly, don't even really ever think about the viewers that much. They really don't. There's, not, I, there, there's precious little discussion about what the viewers really want to hear and know on any given day in a television newsroom or in a newspaper. Very little. Uh, they'll say that there is, but there isn't. So I would like to see those people do a better job of advocating for, the cust- for their own viewers, their customers, because there's a middleman here. The, the media is the middleman. The pollsters are the people providing the service. And you and me, the consumers, the viewers, the readers, the listeners, whatever you want to call us, we're the customers. But there's a middleman in the middle, right, that, that's getting in the way. Now, I happen to think that listeners, viewers, and readers of news, especially after some of these elections we've had in the last 20 years that have come down to real small uh, – margins in individual states i think that we are i think that we are well sophisticated enough to get reports state by state from very from a very early stage in the election cycle so i would like the news media to advocate a little bit more for for the customers advocate a little bit more for the viewing and voting public and start to say to the pollsters hey guys give us about 20 percent national polls and 80 percent state by state so that's the first thing and they don't do it we really only start seeing those state-by-state breakdowns in the last six weeks or so of the election. That's when we really start seeing them, and we should start seeing them a lot earlier and with much more frequency. But there's another problem. <laughs> the other problem is these state-by-state polls are even less accurate than the national polls. The national polls aren't that terribly inaccurate when you add them all together and average them all up. It's the state polls that have a worse track record, and that is the there's a counterintuitive reason for that, but basically the smaller area that you have to poll, and I don't mean geographic, the smaller number of people that you have to poll, obviously any given state, even a huge state like California has a lot fewer people than the nation as a whole, 
is harder to poll accurately for a number of reasons, and I'm not going to get into them right now, not because you can't understand them, but because of just a time constraint. But take my word for it, when you take a look at the individual state polls, that's why the, the so-called experts got the 2016 election wrong. If they had just been relying on the national polls, and if we had national elections in this country, they wouldn't have gotten it wrong, because Hillary Clinton did win a little bit more of the popular vote than, than Donald Trump did, right? But they were estimating the state results incorrectly. And the three states they really got wrong, really got wrong, were Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which really tilted the election to Donald Trump. Without the the 46 electoral college votes that he got from those three states, he doesn't win. He doesn't win. He ends up with, I guess, 260 electoral votes, which isn't enough. You need 270 to win. So um, there you go. That is a, a very important fact to hold on to there. We get misled by the polls because first they're talking too much about polls that are irrelevant, national polls, and then we have these state polls which aren't as accurate. However, just to finish this point of, of, of the argument here, just to remember this one thing, if, if, if the news media did a better job of asking the pollsters to do statewide polling and state-by-state polling from an earlier point and more and more often, the demand in the market, this is an economic concept here, the demand in the market for better state polling would be greater and I do think that the pollsters, the, the suppliers in this, in this uh, discussion, would start doing a better job. They would, they, they, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And if they felt that they needed to keep their customers in the news media and wherever else, whoever else is paying them, if they felt that they had to do a better job and more frequently do a better job on the state-by-state polling, I think that somebody or, or multiple polling companies would come up with better ways to poll the states more accurately. But without that demand in the market that should be there, it's, I have the demand, you have the demand. Without the demand coming, though, from the people who pay these pollsters, that being the news media, then we're, we're, we're not getting what we need. We're not getting what we need. So, you know, polling and discussing polling and political reporting that is mostly based on polling is flawed for so many reasons. But now I want to get to the second part of, of, of why it's flawed, and that is what I was talking about in the beginning here of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network, the beginning where I was talking about how focusing on the polls too much and focusing on horse races too much takes away from discussing the issues, actual issues and philosophies. And we are really at a point right now in American politics where it's time to start talking more about one particular philosophy or that philosophy and its corollary and really have this discussion and really have this debate. Of course, I'm talking about, because of the rise of Bernie Sanders, I'm talking about socialism, and I'm talking about it's the opposite of socialism, capitalism. And we need to discuss these things on at a level that I think is fair. If I had to quickly summarize the way socialism is thought of in the, in the consensus of, 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 of Americans right now, I would say that, and this is maybe even not, not just now, but maybe over the last 50 years, the consensus of Americans have looked at socialism, I think, like this. They felt like, well, it's promising people a bunch of free things. It's promising people a lot. Of, it's promising to get basically end poverty. And the biggest reason why that's a problem is because we can't afford it. Now, I know I've just absolutely quickly oversimplified that issue. 
But what I'm trying to do here is not to explain socialism. I'm trying to explain the way I think if you ask most Americans, if you said you've got 20 seconds to describe socialism and then give me a final verdict on it, I think that's where a strong majority of Americans would come down. They'd say it promises a lot of free things. It promises to end poverty. And I might like it or I may not like it, but we can't afford it. So I think that you've got a majority of Americans who feel that way. But there's a strong number of Americans, especially young Americans, who don't feel that way, who, who agree with the first two parts. Yes, it promises free things. It promises to end poverty. But we can't afford it. And we're seeing you know, younger people starting to say that at the, to, to finish their sentence a little bit differently than most of Americans. I still think most of Americans don't think it can be paid for, don't think it's a real, really um, workable idea for the United States. But I think more and more younger Americans uh, are starting to say that. And, and certainly there's plenty of older people too. I mean, listen, Bernie Sanders is 78. I mean, clearly there's still a lot of some, some older Americans who believe that too. Leftovers from the, 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 the 1960s hippie movement, which is definitely you know, Bernie Sanders era, uh, who still believe that. But for the most part, we're seeing this from younger people. And this was, to me, a very logical outgrowth of a couple of things. One is, Socialism is taught in the universities in, much, in, a, in a much more favorable way. So that's one reason why you've got a lot of young people uh, latching onto it. But that's been true for a long time. What's, the, what's new to the equation is we have millions and millions of more young people, even, even compared to my generation, and I'm, I'm the Gen X generation, who are graduating with massive amounts of student debt because – Tuition, even since the time I was going to college, has basically tripled or quadrupled just in my adult life. And so now you're, you're dealing with millions of young people who are straddled with unspeakable debt. So the idea that they would want to glom onto a socialist candidate who says, I'm going to forgive that massive student debt or we're not going to have it anymore is really not much of a stretch, right? We can see why this is happening. But over and above, again, to me that still sounds like polling. We're talking about why it's become a little bit more popular in a certain demographic or overall more popular. That's still polling. I want to talk about the idea and get back to the way that I admittedly oversimplified socialism. But let's get back to that just for a second. Because I think what most people think in the United States, and I think it's prob- maybe it's maybe just a plura- plurality. I, that's the second week in a row I've had trouble with that word. Plurality. There you go. Uh, but it feels sometimes like a majority of Americans who basically come off with the feeling, and this is true of Republicans too, but certainly more Democrats who feel that socialism is more compassionate, socialism has a stronger moral grounding, but it's not workable, which is why we don't have it in this country. And that conception, whether it's something that we see on television or it's something that we hear out in the street, drives me crazy. Because, my friends, one of the things that I think those of us who are opposed to socialism, those of us who know about the positives of capitalism, have to start talking about more is the strong fact that socialism is not more compassionate. Socialism is not more of a moral system. And when we start, when we start arguing about socialism and capitalism and we surrender the compassion ground and we, suspend, we surrender the nicer ground or, or whatever you want to call it to the socialist and to the left, it's not only a mistake from a point of view of facts, but it's a tremendous tactical mistake. 
capitalism has to be promoted in some ways and, and in more ways than, 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 than it has been in the past as the more compassionate system. And again, as you've heard me say many times here on Novak now, I, Jake Novak, am not a rabbi, and I'm not attempting to play one on the radio. But as long as the people who are arguing for socialism and against capitalism continue to bring up religious morality, and in the United States they'll say something along the lines of how socialism is the more Christian-friendly, compassionate-friendly idea. They won't usually bring up Judaism, although a lot of Jews who are socialists say that Judaism is socialist. So as long as they're going to argue on those grounds, even though many of the people who say that are not only not religious, but they detest religion, but they like to play the religion card when we have that rare debate about socialism and capitalism, which we don't have enough in this country because we're too busy talking about polls and scandals and personalities of candidates. But they'll come at you and they'll say, you know, if they're talking to a Christian audience, they'll say, it's really the more Christian thing. Being socialist, not trying to make a profit, just giving stuff away, that's more Christian. And you'll have Jews who say, this is the Jewish way too. That's wrong. I'm not going to speak to the Christian aspect of it, but I will speak, obviously, here on the, on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm going to talk about the Jewish aspect of it. And I'm not going to go into the Talmud. I'm not going to go into the Torah. I'm going to talk about people who are living in the slightly more modern world who address these issues in ways that we can understand them a little bit better. And I'm going to focus on Maimonides, or in Hebrew, his acronym Ramban, Rambam. Sorry, Ramban is a different rabbi. Rambam, the Rambam. His full name is Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. And Maimonides is a lot of things. He's a rabbi. He is a physician. He is a grand vizier, top advisor to sultans. He's all these things. And, and those of you listening, pro- most of you are probably well, uh, well acquainted with, with Maimonides and all those things. And one of the things that many of you are probably acquainted with and maybe you need to start thinking about a little bit more is his famous outlook on charity and levels of charity. And Maimonides, just again, and I know I'm super oversimplifying and I'm doing it for time, not because I don't think this audience can handle a more difficult set of terminology. But Maimonides really hits a very important idea that is so important for us to remember today. And again, not because he's a Jew and not because he's religious, not because of those things, but because the people who are arguing for socialism say it's the more moral and more religious friendly idea. That's why if they're going to play this religious card, whether they're religious or not, and most of them aren't, but if they're going to play this religion morality card, then we have to, we have to take that away. We have to play on that, that, that playing field. And I'm very confident about playing on that playing field. They think they've got a great advantage there. They don't. Maimonides teaches us that the highest level of charity is not a giveaway, is not welfare, is not here, go dig this ditch and I'll pay you at the end of the day whether I need it or not. It's giving someone a job and a job that's needed to be done. Giving someone a real job, not a government job where it doesn't matter whether you show up or not, not, as I said, the ditch digging job, not a job where you sit around and do nothing, a real job that's needed to be done. And if we're talking about that, then only capitalism can is the, is the only system that can provide real jobs that are needed to be done for the benefit of both the employer and the employee. Only capitalism can consistently do that. 
Everything else is about charity and compassion, and that's great, and that's nice, or, or supposedly about those things. But it's not, because it's not sustainable. And somebody ends up as a victim of that situation and not everyone benefiting. Only capitalism can bring us to that highest level of charity. Only capitalism. And so, my friends, we need to have Maimonides in our back pocket when we confront secular Jews and secular Christians in America who say, this is the more religious thing to do. Again, it's amazing to me that they do this because they, they're not religious. <laughs> they certainly aren't. If they're, if they're Jews, they certainly aren't uh, adhering to the laws of kashrut or Shabbat or, all, or any of those things, or they are certainly not following all the, 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 the Torah rules. And I'm not here to pass judgment on them for that. I'm just trying to say that if they're going to pull out the religion card on the economic system, it would be nice if they played the religion card with everything else, which they don't do. Everything else they're willing to change. If the Torah or the Bible says you can't do this with gay marriage or you can't do, or, or we don't think abortion is right, that, forgetting all that. For, you know, they're, they're, they're trashing religion on those things. But when it comes to economics, suddenly they're, they're Hasidim, whether they're Christian or religious, suddenly they're, they're really interested in religious precepts, which is, you know, the cherry picking. Uh, I know lots of Catholics call that cafeteria Catholics. They'll take some of this, won't take some of that. There's all kinds of words for it. But folks, if they're going to play the morality card, if they're going to play religion, if they're going to say this is about good and bad from a moral standpoint, when we talk about socialism, and that's why they think socialism is great, because it's morally better, you have to say, no, it's not. It's not morally better. If you start making make-work jobs, and if you just give away stuff to people, you're dealing with a lot of moral problems. Many of you have heard me talk about this on Novak now on the Nachum Siegel Network. Every once in a while, I see somebody on my Long Island Railroad train who was clearly working a close to minimum wage job, who's paying that $300, $400 a month for his monthly ticket. And I'm thinking that guy probably lives in a neighborhood or in a housing development or maybe even an apartment building, whatever, with someone who's being paid not to work. Someone who is on the full welfare spread, who might be making just a little bit less in actual cash than the guy who's actually working, but when you think about the costs and the, mo- and the emotional toil of waking up in the morning and taking that train and paying for that ticket and all that kinds of stuff, it probably pays to stay home and take the welfare, right? That's a moral problem. That means we're literally paying someone not to work and rewarding a non-worker over someone who's really busting his back to get to, get to work, even if it's for a small salary. How is that moral to pay the person who's not working <laughs> more than the, you know, again, if that person is mentally or physically disabled and is unable to work? Again, you've heard me say on Novak now many times that that person should actually get more money than what we're paying in welfare now. Give them a better benefit and take the, and, and f- how do we find that money for that extra? Take it away from the people who are able-bodied and able-minded. If you're able-bodied and able-minded in this country, your benefits have to run out at some point so that we can pay the people more money who are not able-minded or able-bodied or very, very old or have absolutely no skills whatsoever and, and they're, you know, that's, I guess, would be a form of not being able-minded, right? Now, there are many other discussions to have along these lines of morality, but I urge all of you, do not surrender the moral ground or the compassionate ground in the discussion or the debate between socialism and capitalism. If you don't feel like you can win this debate, at least say, 
I'm not surrendering you to you, the compassionate thing. You know, that's going to be teku. For those of you who study Talmud, you know what that means. That's going to be one of those things that we're, not, we're going to have to agree to disagree on, okay? We don't really know the answer to that. But you are not, I'm not putting in your column a given hash mark for compassionate and more charitable because that's not true. We have a rabbi in our Jewish tradition, one of our greatest philosophers, the Rambam, who says no. The only way that you can really give charity, the best form of charity, is giving someone a really needed job, and socialism doesn't do that. Cap- only capitalism can. And again, we can discuss things on secular level all we want, but since they always seem to play the religion and morality card when it comes to talking about socialism and capitalism, we have to be prepared for that. Use Maimonides. This is Jake Novak. Again, remember, tune in on March 2nd for the Israel election show. I'll have more details about that later. But this has been Novak Now for this week. I hope to speak to you again next week.